our training environment was at that particular training environment, which had produced so many good results for so many years, was built on a spirit of competition. And so I remember even in my early days on the U.S. Whitewater team, started to qualify for the U.S. Whitewater team in the uh, late 1980s. And my junior team in 86, senior team my senior year of high school in 87, and started winning medals in World Cup races in 88 and 89. And I remember sometimes finishing World Cup races and feeling like the World Cup race wasn't, the, the level of competition wasn't quite as high as our practice sessions on the Potomac River. Welcome to the Path Distilled. I'm your host, Kevin Harris. My co-host is Lauren Tashman. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Path Distilled. Today, I'm super excited to have on with us Joe Jacoby, a performance coach. Uh, know him through Valor Performance, and he's joining us today from Spain. Joe, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. It is wonderful to be here. As we say here in Catalan, bon dia. <laughs> so why don't you give our listeners just a little snippet into who you are and, and the amazing history that you have? Well, um, so uh, my name is Joe. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, I think when I just think about that, like the really big, big picture parts of my life, Lauren, and Kevin is that I, I won America's, uh, well, along with my canoeing partner, Scott Strasball, uh, we won um, America's first ever Olympic gold medal in the sport of whitewater canoe slalom at the 1992 Olympic Games. So we paddled in a two-person canoe and um, it, it, obviously a great experience. We can dive more into that. But um, now at this stage of my life, I'm, I'm, I'm 50 years old and I actually live right beside the canoeing venue where Scott and I won the Olympics in 1992. And that the move here to Catalonia wasn't so much a, um, a, a move, anything to do with sport, but just quality of life and just wanting to learn something new and put myself in a new environment and just make my brain think differently about where I am and what I'm doing. And, uh, it's just so easy in life to just kind of go through the same motions every day and coming here and listening to a different language and different sounds and different cultures just really kind of keeps me awake, which that in itself, these values of kind of Catalan living in the Pyrenees Mountains is something that I incorporate into my own life and into my uh, performance coaching as well. Um, and the, the three words I use to describe that way of life here is simple, slower, and less. And, and here in Catalonia, where I live, that is a way of life. But even I talk to people who, you know, want to perform at the highest level of the, you know, the Olympics or perform well in, in business, that, okay, it doesn't have to be a way of life for everyone, but it certainly can be a really wonderful lens to kind of look at what you're doing or a mindset to approach what you're doing, even if your goal is to go faster, to double your sales or to be more productive or more efficient. I, I, I think, you know, what I experience here in Catalonia is something I think I try to 
frame it to be helpful to the people that I work with. I love that. And in some ways, right, antithetical to maybe what people think when they think about becoming a, a, a high performer or peak performance. We can dig into that in a little bit, but Absolutely. first take, wind us all the way back. Where does your story start, Joe? How did you get involved in the sport that you got involved in? Right. It, it is, it's, it's a funny thing, Lauren and Kevin, because, you know, young kids in the United States, they don't just go to their PE teachers when they're young and say, hey, I'd like to check out a canoe and kayak during recess. <laughs> and by the way, when I get really good at the sport, I need to fly around to these remote locations, Kevin, like the Ocoee River in southeastern Tennessee, that's, you know, these, that hosted the 1996 Olympic Games. And is just very, our, our sport, the competitions in the United States take, often take place in very remote uh, rural settings. And yeah, so accessing the sport is not easy um, in the United States. Often it requires having a mom or dad that's kind of willing to make it possible for their children to do the sport, you know, to shuttle them to the river and to find a club and a group. It's a little bit different from the way kids access the sport here in Europe, and we, we can talk about that in a moment, but I was really lucky. I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area where the Potomac River has an amazing stretch of whitewater that runs right through the, you know, the, the suburban metropolitan area um, from about Great Falls down to Georgetown and about an eight mile section of the river that has every kind of whitewater you could imagine. And so um, we'll get into this because I know you guys will appreciate this because it kind of plays off in an, an Anders Ericsson um, element to the book, Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers. Mm -hmm. I, my outlier story, my kind of my, fortuitous circumstances in life was that I, I was born and raised in the Washington DC area, which you would never think is an advantage for anything, especially the sport of canoeing. But at a time when our sport was not on the Olympic program, uh, the athletes needed to live and train in a place where there were good job opportunities and good educational opportunities. So the Potomac River was perfect. So my fortuitous circumstance was I, at 12 years old, I found myself into a training group that was one of the greatest training groups in the history of our sport. When I went to my first workout at 12 years old, everyone at that training session was a world champion uh, or a world medalist or the legendary coach of the sport. It was literally like being a 12-year-old kid. And believe me, there was nothing special about me. I was not very athletic. In fact, I was pretty overweight. But it was like being a basketball player at 12 and going to play basketball with LeBron James, Kobe Bryant, you know, Russell Westbrook and being coached by Phil Jackson. And then there was me. And like that was my training environment growing up. And uh, so I, I was very lucky. I, there was a summer camp in the a day camp in the DC area where kayaking was an activity, which, you know, back in the late 1970s and early 1980s, that was a rare thing. Everyone had an open canoe program, but very few people had a, like a hard shell whitewater kayaking program at summer camp, but this camp did. And uh, that really made all this possible, you know, that the camp, this training group, 
my mom and dad being supportive of me doing this sport, making it possible. Um, all those things really kind of led to these very fortuitous circumstances for me. It really was kind of an outlier type story for me that, you know, getting going and getting started in the world of high performance. So you're looking back now, right? And saying that was so lucky. Little 12 year old Joe, what was yeah. his, what was going on in his mind when you got to this camp? Um, you know what it is really interesting, it, it, and Lauren, even a, a lot of times when you get to know coaching clients is that when we really kind of look to sort of help our clients discover like what they're excited about, what they're passionate about, it can be really interesting to ask them like what they were excited about between ages like 10 and 15 years old. And, you know, a lot of times for kids at that age group, what they like is things that they're good at like things that they could stand out at at those in those days like again i wasn't very athletic i thought if i was going to have a life in sport it would have been like on the journalism side or even specifically like announcing baseball games i used to love listening to to that but at summer camp i was one of the first kids in my group to be able to do the eskimo roll which is like when a kayak turns over well, everyone can do that Everyone can flip say, over, yeah. <laughs> but getting the boat back upright is is a little bit more challenging, especially when you're young and uh, the the boats are a little harder to roll. And I was the first in my group to be able to do that. And I was the kind of kid that was never the first to do anything in a group. And so that appealed to me, like, oh, I'm good at something. And that, so that caught my my interest. And then. Um, the other thing I would say, just kind of being a social creature, that even though kayaking is a super cool feeling gravity sport and you, it really does lend itself to a sport you can do for life, I still just, I really like the people who did the sport. You know, if you think about it, especially in our training group, uh, unlike like high school football, if you didn't show up to high school football practice, you had a coach in your ear like, Jacoby, where were you? Why weren't you at a practice today? That wasn't going to happen at a canoeing session. You showed up because you wanted to show up. But if you did show up, you had an incredibly supportive culture that this culture was like all world champions and world medalists too, which was really cool. But you did it because you wanted to do it. The nature of canoeing, it's you and your boat and nature. And you're not really competing against the other person. And so you kind of have to figure out what you like about the sport. And a lot of times at 10 to 15, between 10 and 15 years old, it's like, hey, I'm, I'm good at something. I kind of like that. So that's what 12-year-old Joe was probably thinking at, at that time, Lauren. And I have uh, two follow-up questions. Did you recognize the greatness with which you were working at the time? And what were they having you do at the time? So uh, I, it's two really good, good questions. One, I, I did, at 12 years old, uh, I was actually, I had just achieved the highest award you could get at the summer camp, along with a, another friend. And we started to paddle a two-man canoe, a two-person canoe. And so we were invited to a training session because two 12-year-olds were in a doubles canoe, unheard of in the sport. <laughs> and the legendary coach wanted to see this. So we got invited to a workout one summer afternoon. And we knew who we were with. We had never met any of them in person, but at that time, 
there was like an annual publication that came out every year called the, you know, the Whitewater Program. And it had pictures of all these world champions. And we knew who they were, but we'd only seen them in the photographs. And here we were at a session and we were like the guests of honor, right? And so we knew who we were paddling with. And so that was really cool to be at there. And it was also, it was nerve wracking too. But secondly, one of the world champions and then separately the legendary coach asked us about our training logs. And we're like, what's a training log? And uh, they said, oh, you have to record all of your workouts like on a piece of paper and, and you know, in a notebook. And, you know, and, and so at, after they're all the way home from the workout, my mom and I like stopped at the drugstore and I bought a spiral notebook and uh, started to keep a training log. And like I logged every training session that I did uh, for the next 10 years, up until through the 1992 Olympic race right outside my window here. Like I literally went back to the Olympic village after finally getting out of the venue, you know, kind of sacked out on the bed for a second, sat back up, opened the drawer, pulled out a spiral notebook and wrote an entry in the training log. And so in this era where we talk a lot about journaling, you know, it, like that's a big thing in coaching. Now you talk to your clients about journaling at a real low point in my professional life, which we can talk about in a moment when I was the chief executive officer of USA Canoe Kayak, um, I was trying to figure out how to get myself out of a real kind of rut in my life. And I was just in, my health was terrible. I wasn't being very effective in work. I didn't want to repeat my life as an elite athlete, but I looked at things that I used to do and things that could transfer to my life today. So my own journaling practice today actually comes from that first training session I did with those world champions when they mentioned keeping a training log. I use basically that same format for my journaling today. And, uh, but I, I transfer it to the life I want to live today, not you know trying to win an Olympic medal, which I have no interest in doing today. You have this amazing experience, right? Uh, as a kid, what happens next in the story? Um, so one of the cool things was uh, that I kind of appreciated about this culture is that relatively quickly, these world champions and world medalists began to seem like regular people to me. And, you know, there were a lot of other junior paddlers around the United States that I mean, they all knew at the, in those days, you were going to go to the University of Maryland. And it's what everyone did, you know, because they wanted to train in the DC area when they got out of high school and they wanted to be a part of this training group. And it was really interesting to kind of watch people come to the DC area who hadn't lived there and to be around these world champions. We had a very open training group. Anyone could, could be there. But there was a lot of, you could really kind of feel that, that pressure, you know, it kind of how it landed on, on certain people. And I remember sort of saying, hey, that guy puts on his pants one leg at a time like everyone else. Like he's a regular guy, you know, and it was really just trying to help people adapt and adjust. But I remember that, uh, you know, I sort of started at the University of Maryland as well, but I sort of had that. I was used to the training environment. I was used to the feeling and um, our training environment was at that particular training environment, which had produced so many good results for so many years 
was built on a spirit of competition. And so I remember even in my early days on the U.S. Whitewater team, started to qualify for the U.S. Whitewater team in the uh, late 1980s. And my junior team in 86, senior team my senior year of high school in 87, and started winning medals in World Cup races in 88 and 89. And I remember sometimes finishing World Cup races and feeling like the World Cup race wasn't the, the level of competition wasn't quite as high as our practice sessions on the Potomac River. They were really, really competitive sessions and by design. But they wore you down as well. And specifically, they, they also had quite an effect on my canoe partner who was not from the DC area. And he was a really, he was a petite, he had a petite, one of the nice things about whitewater canoeing is that you don't have to be super big, super strong to be good at the sport. Whitewater river rapids are this incredibly powerful force of energy. And your job isn't to be stronger than the river, but it's really to work with it and like dance with it and channel the energy of the river into what you're doing. And my partner who, he was like 130 pounds dripping wet. You know, he was really small and light for the sport. I was about a, I was pretty small, relatively small. I was about 160, 165 pounds for a good part of my early racing career. So we were one of the smallest lightweight teams on the circuit, but that training environment in DC would really kind of wore down on, on, on us. And Scott was injured, would get injured quite a bit. So we needed a bit of a change. So right around the time that the sport was added to the 1992 Olympic program, which was in uh, early 1989, um, we finished the 1989 world championships, which were in the US with a fifth place result, which was really good. And um, we had won our first World Cup race that year, but we decided to move out of this really ultra competitive training environment. We moved to Appalachia. We moved to the Nantahala River in Western North Carolina, where the pace was much slower, more quiet, and we, you know, we didn't have to work. The cost of living was was nothing, and we could just put the proverbial eggs all in one basket and sort of slow down and really pace ourselves and fine tune everything that we were doing. And the great thing about that was that we went from a very established training environment to building our our own training environment. So I'm very lucky to have had both experiences. Learn, live and learn in a established, great culture of excellence and then build one from the bottom up. It's interesting, you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking, you know, you mentioned Anders Ericsson before, which we'll get into that later, yes. as you know. Um, but uh, obviously one of the things he's he's most known for is the idea of deliberate practice. And maybe, and Kevin, you know, you can certainly weigh in here, maybe one of the things that's less talked about, I guess, or understood about deliberate practice is it doesn't mean like go all out all the time, you know, just do hard things all the time. It's really strategically about investing energy to improve on the things you need to improve on with breaks in between to be able to make sure you are able to devote that energy and attention to what you're doing. You and I are also in a book club together, right? Currently reading about pressure. So it made me think about that too, that that's one of the things being talked about recently is, you know, really practicing under pressure because right. you get the benefits from having done so. So it was, it was just, you know, interesting as you talked about that here about um, 
how that was at work in that one training environment, but maybe some of the kind of quote unquote dark sides of, of that if you don't do it right. I, I have a wonderful deliberate practice story for you. And you're, you're so kind of on, on point with what deliberate practice is. And it's not just, it's not grinding. It's not grinding. Practice can be so many things. It can be just learning to slow down and repeat things out of enjoyment over and over again. But one of the things that we did as the 92 Olympics got closer was that we really began to kind of dial in on all the elements of what the Olympics were gonna be like. Because this sport, by its nature, takes place in these really remote wilderness areas and like Appalachia, but the Olympics are not that experience at all. I mean, there's a lot of spectators and there's a lot of bureaucracy and, you know, our sport is not a sport that has ever been like housed at an Olympic training center and you're around all these other athletes, you know, we, our locker rooms were our cars, you know, like that we raced out of our cars. And so we had to get really smart about what our race day routines were going to look like and how we were going to practice that and how we could model that. And so there was one practice that we did before the uh, 1992 Olympics. So the Nanahill Outdoor Center is this um, is in this very remote part of of the of Appalachia in Western North Carolina, but it's housed at the Nanahill Outdoor Center, which is this like premier whitewater rafting destination and has an incredible history with the sport. And in right around that time, they had just brought in a uh, there was a new tourist rail line, a new tourist train that kind of came in from a local city and it dropped off like a couple hundred tourists right on the uh, the grounds of the Nanahill Outdoor Center. And so a couple weeks before we went to, uh, came over here to Laseo for the Olympics, the coaches organized a practice which they called distraction practice. And they, um, it was great. They just told us that we're gonna have like a race simulation but the coaches had kind of organized everything. They had written down some instructions and kind of uh, made photocopies and they handed it to people getting off the train to sort of say, hey, you get to be a part of an Olympic practice session today. And they would give them like whistles and horns and bells and prepare them with like stupid questions to ask us. And they would do everything we could to like throw us off our game. And even though it was like a normal training environment, like we changed, you know, the, the environment to kind of mimic the Olympics and just imagine what distractions were, were going to be like. And it was great. Like even the starter would count us down three, two, one, go. And they would be like, wait, 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 we didn't get the start. Come back to the start. And you had to think like, are they just messing with us? Or should we keep going? <laughs> and you know, uh, it was a great, great way to practice. And this was just one small example, like the way we thought and the way we would kind of anticipate how different the Olympic experience was gonna be from anything else we'd ever done in our lives before. And it was great. And there were some other things that played into that. We can talk, which really leads to why I'm even living here in Catalonia in the first place was because we spent a lot of time here in the year before the Olympics, not just learning the river, but embracing this culture mm -hmm. of the people. I mean, that was a big thing for me. I, I, I'll tell you this, this second part of the story. In 1991, we had a, an, an Olympic test event 
here in La Salle. And it was a test for the athletes to get to try out the, the river, but it was also for the organizers, the timing system, spectators, run through everything. And I remember having this epiphany when I, I was 21 years old and thinking a year from now, I don't want to wake up feeling like an American visitor in the Olympic Village. Like, I want to wake up feeling like I belong here. And I, I just, from that moment on, it was like every interaction I had in this community, and this is a community where you don't need a car, you can walk from the hotels, the Olympic Village to the venue, never more than five or 10 minute walk to anything. So whenever I went to the supermarket or to a restaurant, every interaction, it didn't seem like I, I, I was a visitor. I felt like I was interacting with a neighbor. And so after a hundred days of training here on this course in the year before competition, yeah, we knew the water pretty well, but we liked the people. We liked the culture. Like I, it was like a walking to the Olympics on the day of the Olympic race, walking to the venue, it, it, it already felt like I'd accomplished that goal. Like I felt like I belonged here, which was really cool. Sure, which is certainly less mental workload, right? In terms of things that might be on your mind that maybe don't belong there. Yeah, I mean, if, if we apply this, you know, we, and I know on this podcast, we talk about performance in a lot of different areas, but if you're a musician, you can you can know your song really, really well on your home stage or in your practice environment, but you have to be able to take that into another venue. If you're a business person and you're giving a presentation, it may feel great to give it in your home office, but um, you got to get good at giving it in maybe three time zones away on the other coast and in front of other people. And, and so it makes you think like, how are you going to perform well when you have to do what you do, but in a very different environment and thinking, learning how to think through that and how to feel at home in that environment, how to sort of unpack the bag, so to speak. Um, that was a really big lesson in learning how to practice and how to think about performing well in a different environment. And, it was so powerful for me here that I, this is just where I wanted to live. And you took the extra step of doing actual simulations of a crowd. Does, was there ever a time that you did visualization of the courses or crowds? Yeah. Uh, so visualization was, uh, was a really big part of what we did. What, what was really interesting about our visualization was that we were in a two, a two person canoe. So, you had your own visualization and you know we were learning about like do you visualize like as you see the river through your own eyes or do you visualize like a third party like a camera watching you go down the, the water but the thing about visualizing as a doubles canoe team is that you had to talk with your canoe partner a lot because you hope that his visual visualizations are as close to yours as possible that you're not thinking two different things because once you start paddling together in a doubles canoe, um, most of the teamwork is through unspoken communication. So a great example of that and how we visualize, um, we speak about making a plan on the river and a river is not like a golf course, for example, where uh, it's you have static uh, obstacles. You have a hill or curve or a sand trap that don't move. In a river, you have hydraulics and moving waves and 
um, eddies that are just moving and changing all, all the time. And so once you start paddling, once you have your plan, the guy in the front of the boat, my canoe partner, Scott, like he's the eyes and I'm in the stern or the back person position. My goal is to follow. So Scott reads the water and I read Scott. So I can look at his shoulder, his back, and what he's doing with his paddles that's indicating to me whether he's trying to push the boat a little bit to the left, a little bit to the right, or drive straight ahead. And the way we looked at it, we didn't divide those roles up into like one person is the power and one person steers. It was 50-50 on everything. So including correcting mistakes, course correcting, which is a huge part of coaching today is working with people on, on course correction. But that just meant that, you know, when it came to visualization, you wanted to try to ensure that everyone's visualization was as kind of close to the same visualization as possible. Because when you visualize, sometimes you visualize mistakes. So you got to back up and then kind of work through it again in yourself. And you're hoping that like, it's fairly similar with your canoe partner. That's fascinating. Yeah, that's fascinating. I literally can use the same word. Um, <laughs> Before I ask you to tell us about your Olympic experience, I want to hear thoughts on the transition going from it being not an Olympic sport to an Olympic sport. Because I had an experience with that with the team I was working with, so I'm curious what your experience of that was like. Right. Mm. So, um, you know, in those days, you, you always hope for it, right? I mean, you think of the Olympics as being this incredible stage, and I gotta tell you, like, it was, our sport was actually, whitewater canoeing was on the Olympic program one time in the 1972 Olympics. Flatwater sprint racing was added to the Olympic program in 1936 and was on the, you know, they shared often, almost always shared the venue with rowing, so it was much easier organized. It was a really big political effort to get whitewater canoeing on the Olympic program in 72. And then because it was hard to figure out what to do with the venue after the Olympics are over, it wasn't on the Olympics again until 1992. And, and actually now we have a really good story about post-Olympic usage because our venue can be used for rafting, mm. and which is, which is a great thing. But so we had this touch with the Olympics, but in the early, late 1980s, early 1990s, we had a wonderful adjustment period. We had new, new financial resources that were coming into the sport. And instead of just being Washington DC centric, um, you know, there were people, we had a board of directors that you know, were thinking, okay, how do you grow the sport out a little bit into new places? And so our, thinking about going to a new place and then inhale outdoor center played really well into that. You know, that we had this, it was called the centers of excellence program and, you know, Nantahala racing club became like, you know, got some funds to help get canoe slalom racing up and going again at the Nantahala outdoor center with the support of those resources of a professional rafting outfit and outfitters right there too. Um, we sort of, you know, what I think, Lauren, about your question is that, you know, on one hand, the human side of us says, oh, cool, like this sport is on this major stage that will get 
recognition and vision and touch points by people who would never get to see the sport ordinarily. And that's a beautiful part of it. What has happened over the years, I've always said that, you know, these days that whitewater canoeing is kind of, racing is driven by two things. Sort of imagine like two river currents coming together. One river current is the Olympic river and the other river is like the whitewater, you know, the values and kind of tradition culture of whitewater canoe racing. But that's not a 50-50 split anymore. It's like 99% Olympic and 1% whitewater, you know, it's, we have kids that learn our sport today that have never paddled a natural river before. They learn on a, man, on a human-made whitewater river channel, which is great. I mean, it allows us to, for us to do our sport in urban places like Prague or Vienna or Oklahoma City in the not-too-distant future, Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. The downside of it is that, you know, I think a lot of the culture and values of whitewater have been swallowed up. And I also think that the Olympic movement has, you know, is inherently changed a, a lot, um, which is hard. You know, I, I struggle with it today. Like I, I think, but I think that transition, it was beautiful and exciting back in the late eighties and early nineties. It, it, it brought a lot of people who wanted to be a part of it. It felt very inclusive. It, it felt very non-exclusive. I think when you have that, that's wonderful. It doesn't feel like that today, but back then it was really, really nice. And um, I got to tell you, the, the Olympic experience here in Laseo for the community, for the, uh, for the venue, for the Barcelona Olympic organizers, for the athletes and the teams, it was a pretty non-restrictive race. It wasn't completely open, but it was, you know, we had pretty big national teams that were able to compete in the Olympic race. And so we had a large field. Today, only a few people get to race in the Olympic race. I can't look, I can't look you guys in the eye and say that the best paddler wins the Olympic Games because there's so many good paddlers that don't get to participate in the Olympic Games because the participation is so much more narrow than it was, you know, back in 1992. So what was your Olympic experience like? Uh, the games experience itself. I mean, I, you know, I, 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 so I talked a little bit about this idea of feeling really connected to the culture and, and feeling like I didn't want to be a, this American visitor waking up in the Olympic village. And I, I definitely was not. Um, you know, having this Olympic race, it was, um, uh, we taught, you know, you guys will get a kick out of this. We had a very, very elaborate uh, warm up routine. Like, I can tell you, we, our first race run, you get two race runs down the Olympic course uh, at the Olympic Games. The first one started at 10 17 in the morning. And we woke up at 4.45 in the morning for a race run that started at 10.17. To this day, I can tell you everything that we did in our routine between 4.45 and 10.17. And it was so mapped out. We started to rehearse it back in North Carolina at the Nantahala. And then we did like on the day before the Olympic race, we did a dry run from start to finish. Everything from waking up, stretching, breakfast, massage, walking the course first warm-up second warm-up literally we had to be we were asked several times by our coaches they say you guys know you're not racing today right 
I mean, you know, we're getting ready to, re, you know, we're just rehearsing what we're going to do the next day. And then at 10, 17 in the morning, on the day before the race, we just packed our bag and went home to the village and watched the rest of the race on the uh, closed circuit television inside the Olympic Village. So then the next day, we kind of had walked through that routine, all of it, and it just felt very kind of second nature. That helped a lot, you know. And I think a lot of times as a coach in canoeing, because of this, I come across as being like a stickler for warm up. And it's not what it is at all. I think what I would say about my Olympic experience that I relate to other people's performance experience in anything, my case for having a, a good routine is that you want to give your energy, you want to give all the energy you have a job, you want to assign it a job. My biggest fear as a coach, as a coach is with an athlete is getting like a half hour before the race run and they're watching the race as you're kind of, you know, shooting video or doing something and they look up and say, what should I be doing now? Not that inherently like that's such a horrible question, except that it reveals that they're worrying, you know, energy that could be assigned and going into a place has now turned into energy that's worry. And so that's it, you know, we just have these routines that really should in, in account for every minute from the time you wake up to the time you uh, race, whether that's playing some video games or reading a book or what you eat and preparation and rehearsing it. And it just makes life like a lot easier when you do this. And um, that was a big part of the Olympic experience. To this day, I remember very little about what happened after the Olympics, you know, what happened after we crossed the finish line. I remember a few things, but not a lot. And that had nothing to do with drinking alcohol or anything. Just <laughs> <laughs> really, I mean, everything was so focused on the front side and preparation and, and how you feel at the start. And the last thing I'll answer this question by, and I talk about this a lot, is that, um, you know, we live in a world that we love to talk about finish lines. We love to talk about goals. We love to talk about how things are going to be when we finish something. And I get it. I get it. And especially if you're leading teams, goals are this way that you kind of get everyone on the same page. But, you know, the people at Valor, I mean, Adam Naylor, who was, was I did my training at Valor under Adam and, and now work closely with Jeff Coleman. Everyone knows that like, I, I don't love goals. I don't love goals. And <laughs> yeah, my you reason and I align for, on that. <laughs> I know you and I have, a, we will, we'll, we'll be talking more about this, but the thing is, is like, I don't see the point in putting energy into what you don't have because our ability to actually change and do better and improve is the ability to put your most amount of energy into what you have today. And if you do that and you find a way to repeat that on a daily basis, you will improve, you will get better. And um, you know, what I notice is that it's not that you can't have goals or don't have goals, but I've noticed that the elite performers are just there. What makes them the best is they're the best at letting go of their goals. Mm -hmm. They're just good at, you know, it, they know that when they let them go, they're not really letting them go. They, they know it's inside of them somewhere, but they know it doesn't do any good to put energy, to expend energy on something you don't have. You want to make a certain amount of money. You want to have a second home on a certain beach or on a certain mountaintop. Great. But thinking about what you don't have 
it may feel good, but it doesn't really move you forward into the actions that actually they get you there. And so my, what I always tell people is the start line is, is the difference. And I call the, you know, getting called into the Olympic start line in that little start area is like the most sacred place I've ever been in my life. And my house overlooks the, the start line of the 1992 Olympic race. It's calm water and it does you no good to think about what color medal you're going to win. It doesn't do you, there's no bravado. There's no, it's like you're completely just, it's so raw and it's just you in the, the moment. And so you kind of get 60 seconds in this sacred space to start. And so you can decide what you want to do with those 60 seconds. And for me, it was, you know, even then in, at 22 years old, it was being grateful for this opportunity. And it was thinking of having a moment to appreciate the family and friends that helped me get to where I am and then executing a plan and that we had talked about and enjoying appreciating my canoe partner. And then you start and that's it. And what it reminds me that every day is a start line. It doesn't have to be as complicated as starting the Olympic Games or as high pressure, but every day is the start line. And to that end, I now believe at this stage of my life, there's only one finish line and we'll know it when we get there, but there's only one finish line and we'll know it when we get there. Even if what appears to be a finish line in our lives is really just the start to something else. And mm -hmm. that, that was my Olympic experience. That's really what my Olympic experience was in a nutshell. I have a question about the routines piece. Yeah. My sense of it, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, is that it was very focused on two things, or I should say one thing, that the two sub things maybe is how I'm seeing it, but it was very strategic in the sense of it was, the purpose was to get yourself ready to perform. And so it sounded like with some of the examples you mentioned of what was in it, that it was very task focused, yeah. right? Like these are the things to do to prime performance. Right. So I'm curious about whether there were any elements of time, like the amount of time you needed to do something or particular timing, and also um, the whether there was any like need or inflexibility. And I ask that because I, I, I work with a lot of people who their routine maybe isn't as intentional as they realize it should be, right? They do particular things, but they're not sure exactly what that's supposed to be triggering. And they're very time focused. Like I need this amount of time to do it, right? It's like, well, what if you don't have that time? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I do think that there can be ways to expedite it in certain situations, but you know, I, I think it's always worth looking, you know, backing up from what really matters to see if they're, you know, how early would you have to wake up to kind of make it work or to do your priming at a different part of the day? Or if you have to do, just say you're in sales and have to deliver a presentation late in the day, what would it look like if you kind of imagined on that day, like your wake up routine was at noon, you know, instead of at seven in the morning, if you have to do that presentation at five in the afternoon. Um, so there are some different ways, but ours was very time oriented uh, because there, you know, you're working towards a, an actual start time of 10, 17 in the morning. Mm -hmm. But, and, and then also I think it, it also physiologically 
and, and I talked about this with a Valor client a little while ago that, you know, we don't just perform on this one high level throughout the day. The day has these ups and downs to it. And you want to use those really strategically, like, you know, is to try to map out some up moments so that you can map out the down moments. And the translation of that into real world is, um, you know, we call it race pace. You know, once you sort of know what your middle level moving ground is, you want to do some work above race pace, higher intensity, and you want to do some things well below race pace, moving really slowly and taking time. And, and you know, it takes a while to get to figure out what goes where in those places, but it's just a matter of practice and, and putting it into your, into your daily routine. And I think that can become a sort of a, a form of priming. And uh, it can also become a form, we talk a lot about rest as well and recovery. So in the sport of whitewater canoeing, where you get two runs down the Olympic course, after your first run, crossing the finish line is not a finish line. It is literally instantly the start to your second run. So, you know, um, in our case at the Olympic Games, we, we had a really good first run and had a really big lead after the first run. But, you know, you have to get over feeling good really quickly. And because, like, you know, your warm down is like is part of the beginning of rest and really coming down so that you can reach another peak again in a few hours time when you're back on the water again. So you sort of think a lot about that, you know, what does a typical day look like, you know, or kind of map out where you want to be at your best. And, and I think this is where coaching can really help is, you know, coaches can really help people to see those spots where they really want to be up and also where they can afford to not have to be so up. And once you help to identify that, then we can really work on being, you know, getting more out of recovering during those times where you're not up and so that you have more energy when you really want it and, and you're really getting better at letting go when you don't need it. Yeah, and I think you're mentioning there the intentionality, right, and the strategy behind it, but also I think what I, what I was trying to get at too is really focusing on the controllable pieces, right, and yes. not making the routine something reliant on things that aren't within your control. You know, I, I think that, you know, the, okay, I mean, I, certainly there is a, you could take a sport like some of these combat sports like wrestling, boxing, you know, that one-to-one -one is that, yeah, sometimes moves are based on other people's moves, but, you know, the way you actually get good at a sport even like that is that you rehearse different outcomes in different scenarios. And we do the same in Whitewater, which has a moving target, you know, Wrestlers do like a lot of conditioning training and a lot of, uh, you know, uh, training for a round, you know, and, and they also have to recover well between rounds. But when it comes to the technique training, they rehearse just a lot of different situations, technically speaking. We can do the same in business. We can do the same in music. And I, it even reminds me of one particular workout we did leading up to the 2004 Olympics where we would rehearse very specific outcomes of the first run, like paddling horribly, mm -hmm. which almost ensured that like we, nothing was gonna happen at the Olympic games, but we still had to go out and make a second run. You know, it feels so crappy, but at least like, what are you gonna do, not practice it? I mean, it could really happen to having these like really pressure oriented runs and, 
And it's like, if you could just take a minute and visualize what that's really gonna feel like in your bones, and then go repeat the motion, you know, it's not unlike talking to a client and practicing different responses mm -hmm. to what a, a client might say. We have no idea what they may say, but, or a colleague or a, a peer or supervisor, or someone you're mentoring, you have no idea how they're gonna respond. But it doesn't mean you shouldn't think about potential outcomes and rehearsing some different, some possible strategies for that and working through that either for yourself or with clients or people on your team. And yeah, it's a very doable thing. And I want to return for a moment to your disdain for goals. Um, <laughs> Cause I have a question about that. So is, so are you putting, let's navigate this turn on this particular course in the same box as let's make it to the Olympics or how does that work in actuality, I guess is what I'm getting at. Yeah. It, it, you know, the river, so I talked about these Catalan values and way of living is one of my big coaching metaphors. The other one is the river. The thing about a river is, and, and I completely believe that in life, we are navigating like a force of energy that does not stop. We can choose to stop within the river, but the river doesn't stop. The river is life, you know, and the life keeps going we can find calm spots in the river that's very very doable but you know we're not going to pretend like is what i love about whitewater canoeing is that like compared to basketball when things aren't going well you just call time out and you can regroup you don't get to call time the river doesn't call time out <laughs> the river keeps going so in whitewater canoeing being really good actually means that you have to uh, be able to adapt and adjust have go shift from plan a to plan b to plan c just boom, 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 very instinctively. And the way you do that, the way you're good is that, you know, you have to be present and in the moment and, be, and just paddle the water where you are. And so a couple of things happen when that happens. Eventually, river, the water's gonna calm down and you'll get through a rapid. But when you make mistakes, you don't have time to beat yourself up over the mistake. You, if you do, you're gonna lose your teeth. It's just, I mean, there's no other way to say it. Like you're really putting yourself at risk if you make a mistake and then choose to beat yourself up over the mistake while the mistake is happening. Cause the water is moving, there's rocks, there's hydraulics, there's things that can get a lot worse. And so course correction is like this really big, big thing. And I always tell people, my canoe partner and I were not the fastest, the strongest, best. We were not a favorite to win a gold or a silver medal. There were two big favorites in that in the 92 Olympic race that were just crushing it that year. And then there were like a bunch of boats that, you know, were vying for a bronze medal. And we were among that, that group. And so, uh, but what I always tell people about what we did well on the day of the Olympic race was that we corrected mistakes better than the rest of the field. And I often, when I'm doing a coaching workshop or strategic planning workshop based around uh, the uh, around the river, you know, using the river as a metaphor, uh, I show the Olympic race run from 1992. It helps to build credibility and, and it's exciting. But then over the course of a couple of hours, I teach people about what, what water does when it flows down a river, what rocks really are, what obstacles really are, and what the river's doing, and, and what your response to it can be. But then 
I do a, the most popular section of, of this particular coaching program is coach is the uh, course correction because we watched the Olympic run a second time. And on that run, I, I tell them, okay, there's five big mistakes that Joe and Scott make in, in the Olympic race. Like you got to find them. One is really obvious, but it's so cool because a room full of people who've never seen the Olympics, they start to find the mistakes, which gives us that way of talking about how we corrected the mistakes and didn't, you know, the whole idea is that mistakes can go a couple of ways. One is that as the boat begins to go off track, the quicker that you can correct it, that takes less energy and, you know, there's just less correction. And B, even better is that as you begin to anticipate the mistakes before they happen. That's another form of, of course correction. And people don't realize that to be good over time, over a long period of time, being correcting mistake for me correcting mistakes being the best at correcting mistakes will get you a lot further than being like the fastest or the strongest for a few seconds and so based on what you just said it reminds me of uh, kind of the idea that don't get so caught up in your goals that you fail to go with what needs to be done essentially there, there's always going to be a time to check in on the goals and to come back. Like there'll be those calm spots in the river. It's just like, I can't imagine, you know, if, if I mean, of course, I mean, like I'm human, I have negative thought loops. I'm always looking for ways to, you know, to course correct, get my, you know, my monkey brain back on track. I have a lot of ways to do that. In fact, Lauren mentioned, you know, we're reading Perform Under Pressure by Dr. Siri Evans right now. It is great. Like, I, I, you know, you guys will appreciate sports psychologists are so good at creating really nice models for helping, you know, people simplify what they're doing and organize themselves and thought loops and things like that. But at the end of the day, any of these models are only as good as people's ability to call them up when they need. And, you know, one of the things that I'll certainly talk about in our next book club meeting is, oh my gosh, like, uh, you know, this, this model that Evans uses in the book Perform Under Pressure, I, it's just really working for me. I use it when I run, I use it in my relationships. I, it's just coming up really naturally for me, which gets me really excited about it. Like, you know, okay, where am I on the red blue scale? What <laughs> am I really trying to accomplish? And what's an action that I can do right now? 10 seconds, 10 seconds, 10 seconds. Doesn't solve everything. But if you have a model, whatever that model is that makes you more self-aware when things are going off track or when things aren't feeling just right, like go with that, you know, whatever that is, you know, and it's, I'm, I'm really enjoying Evans, but you know, the river is, is a great reminder of that. You know, it's, uh, it, it'll, it'll pull you back in and you know, you're, you're not thinking about what's not right in your life. You're thinking about getting through the damn rapid, you know? <laughs> so take us back to that, uh, the 92 Olympics and when you're finding out that you're crossing or in first place, I guess. Yeah. Um, what's really great about our sport is that there's no racing against each other. You have one, one boat coming down the course at a time. And so we were up on the riverbank at the time we won the Olympics when the last boat went through and, uh, didn't, didn't top our time. And, um, yeah, it was great. You know, um, you know, I, 
my mom passed about five years ago. I, uh, we lost my father about six weeks ago to COVID and, uh, you know, um, moved over here after my mom passed. My father was a big champion of the move over here. You know, he, he only came to Laseo one time and, and, uh, of course it was a really enjoyable experience for him. He had a wonderful time here. And so, it wasn't lost on me, you know, after the Olympics, you know, how happy, you know, my, my family was, my friends were, the team was, and, uh, and that was a great part of it, you know, and, and I wasn't able to go back to the United States after my father passed. I, you know, had a, some good conversation. I was close at a great relationship with him. And, uh, but I feel good that like I was in a place that he liked, that he enjoyed and that, you know, he was happy that I was here. So when you asked me about that experience right after the Olympics were over, um, yeah, the thing is you don't really prepare to be Olympic champion. You don't really, you were never training for that. You were just training to do the best you can. And then once it happened, like I also, in one point in my life, I was the color commentator for NBC Olympics at the 2008 Olympics in Beijing where your only job is to get people excited about who's going to win and who's not going to win. And that's so different. Like that's the story is to create that, you know, that excitement. But I think for a lot of people who listen to this, this podcast, yeah, we we just don't think about that. And sports psychologists know it, the athletes know it, you know, the performance People know it. You're just training to do the best you can in the moment and keeping people present and there. And winning is something that may happen after the fact. But if if winning involves the performance of other people, okay, I mean, that's just a lot you don't control. So you got to focus on what you can control. Were you able to enjoy the experience of getting the gold medal? Yeah, it, it, it was a – I mean – I still to this day, I mean, I, I do, I actually tell you, this is kind of funny. I recently started a, uh, a new experience with Airbnb. Um, so Airbnb has these experiences online. Like you can go to Prague and take a cooking class or sign up for a bike tour. Airbnb is an Olympic sponsor now. And I always wanted to create my own experience here at the 1992 Olympic course, where you can come over here and go rafting with me in the same place where I won the Olympics. And then COVID happened. And Airbnb got the idea, um, hey, we could do virtual experiences. And I'm like, oh, I created a virtual experience, like a walking tour <laughs> of the cool. Olympic venue. And so like, I walk around with my, a selfie stick and my camera on Zoom and <laughs> during one of the Spanish team training sessions. And I tell stories. I talk about the start line like I did in this podcast. I talk about... I tell a few stories. I, I end up in the main square in town where my first saw my parents after the Olympics are over. So yeah, I'm still enjoying it today. Kevin, you know, it's just so cool. You know, it just gives me a different way to share the experience in a different way. And people can be at home and they're kind of watching and asking questions and <laughs> yeah, it's really pretty cool. That's awesome. Tell us about um, his post post Olympics, post your athletic career. You mentioned you uh, were the the head of this U.S. organization. How did that come to be, and what was that like? Yeah, um, great question. Um, the uh, yeah, I yes, it, this was like a dream job. So I never actually. It's not something I was really prepared for. Like I knew the sport well. 
And I think sometimes Olympic governing bodies sort of go through these cycles where they need a chief executive officer that has experience far from the sport. And sometimes it's good to have a CEO who has in-sport experience. It just depends where they are in the cycle. I don't think it was a bad timing, you know, for me. I was on the board of directors at the time, and I initially came into the role as the uh, interim uh, CEO. And um, yeah, I, I the thing with me was that as I got into the job, I, I loved it. I was excited. I saw a lot of opportunity. I think a part of me also thought what would really be nice is to kind of what I think everyone thinks is how do you create the system that will facilitate more Olympic gold medal winning experiences, you know, to how to replicate that. That just was much, much harder than I ever thought it was going to be. I'm sure I had things I could do better. The biggest thing for me was that I didn't take care of myself during this process. I took, I would try to take care of everyone and everything, but never myself. And I, I didn't, have a especially good relationship with my board of directors initially early on I lost my way in my health I gained a lot of weight I was irritable my habit you know it's just you hear these things over over and over again it just um and I kind of had this way of talking to myself also it's like uh, you're you've won the olympics you'll get out of this you know how to fix it and yeah, but you never do, you know, you just, it just kind of keeps going. And, um, you know, things did change. I remember that uh, about halfway through my five years at USA Canoe Kayak, I was in Oklahoma City, which is, you wouldn't think of being like the center of this, for being like a very good center for the sport of canoeing. But at the time, Oklahoma City was investing, was in the process of investing over $200 million in its, um, in its boathouse district and uh, the uh, Oklahoma River, which has since become a great kind of center and destination for both rowing and canoe kayak. And now there's a whitewater course, but it's not just elite athletes. It's very, in fact, it's really about, you know, a, it's like an urban whitewater, it's an urban river destination is what it is and has a lot of elements of health and wellness to it and kind of brings all these communities together in one place. And I love that part of it. But um, I, we started a, an employee wellness program at that time, about halfway through, and I didn't have any goals. I, I mean, I knew I wasn't in good shape, but I just needed to interrupt. I needed to interrupt some bad habits, some bad thought patterns. And basically those bad habits and bad thought patterns were Chinese food, all you can eat Chinese food buffet for lunch and then all you can eat pizza buffet for lunch, you know? So there were this kind of this lunchtime workout that we did. And yeah, it was like just great to change clothes and go into the, these beautiful gymnasiums that we had at the Boathouse District. And when I say Boathouse District, I probably a lot of people are thinking about like, you know, Boathouse Row up in you know, like Philadelphia or Boston with these old boathouses. This think the Jetsons go kayaking. This looked like <laughs> it looked like one boathouse looks like the Millennium Falcon uh, of a, uh, in Star Wars. Like that was a boathouse, you know. And uh, they're very kind of space age, look, futuristic looking boathouses that kind of painted a very different picture. You felt you felt so good being in these places. And we would do our lunchtime workouts in there, and it was just great to change clothes and to do something different and exercise and play games with your friends and. That was the beginning and 
over time, you know, very slow. I, I always talk about, you know, simple, slow and less and talk about small steps forward every day. And nothing happened fast for me. Nothing changed fast. But slowly, it started with physical health and then shifted into mental and emotional health and later into spiritual health. And um, it was a, eventually I was able to kind of even ask myself, you know, through this process at U.S. State Canoe Kayak, is this really what I want to do? Or maybe taking, exploring these ways of thinking and ways of health and seeing where that leads me with other kinds of people. And eventually that even led me to Valor and Sarah Milby and, you know, kind of responding to a Facebook post that Iris Zimmerman put in the Olympic alumni Facebook page, a Paralympic, Olympic and Paralympic alumni Facebook page about some part-time coaching work and had a conversation with Iris who I knew a little bit and that was wonderful. And then Adam and then Sarah, and I'm like, this is great. And now, Valor, we work with these wonderful clients, but Lauren, you and I know the best part of it is our coaching community. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I look up to people like yourself who have leaned heavily into academia, which was, that wasn't my thing. Like, I, everyone knows it, Valor. Like, I was really intimidated by that, you know, and being around people who were really well-educated and well-researched and that was never like my strong point and I was really welcomed and found a place to kind of be a part of this conversation and honestly being on this podcast is like incredible like because I know that you guys aren't just well-educated and well-researched but I know who you studied with you know and who you learned under and I'm like oh my gosh and like it's amazing to like find a little bit of voice and to learn from people like you guys. And that's what Valor did, did for me. And that's why I'm really glad I got out of the Olympic movement and got into this coaching world. So Thanks. you sent us uh, two pictures. Ah, okay. uh, talk us through why when we asked you to think about something that epitomizes you or your path or pivotal moments, these were what came up for you. Okay, I, I sent you two pictures. We'll, we'll go in chronological order. The first one was 2012 that was crossing the finish at my first marathon in Oklahoma City, which is, um, by the way, an incredible uh, marathon. And it's like, I look at that photo now, and it's like, I wasn't even in very good shape physically when I did that marathon. But finishing the Oklahoma City Marathon, it was a really, really special um, event. I remember thinking when I was, uh, oh, it was a little less than 10 years earlier at my at the 2004 Olympics that that was a two minute canoeing race. And then like, I never thought I could, you know, <laughs> run for four and a half hours and be out running. And um, this photo crossing the finish line in Oklahoma city. But the second part of this photo, uh, Lauren and Kevin is that the Oklahoma city Memorial marathon, it, it honors the, uh, the people who lost their lives in the bombing in mm -hmm. Oklahoma city it's so powerful, you know, the river, I mean, the uh, marathon begins with a 100, 168 second moment of silence, one second for each of the victims who passed away uh, in the uh, bombing of that marathon. And it's just, is like one of the most, again, we talk about start lines. Mm -hmm. It is just one of the most powerful start lines that anyone will ever line up on. And it's like, you can hear a pin drop and there's 25,000 people in the start area. And 
it's just, it's beautiful. It's special. So this was kind of crossing the finish line in my first marathon. I, I've now run 11 marathons and I was scheduled to run one uh, on March 15th, a, f- a few months ago here in Barcelona. It was, it was postponed. Uh, hoping to run that, make up that one in October. Uh, we'll see how things are going with COVID at that point. But uh, I, I still enjoy running marathons today. Yeah, and Kevin, you should know that his plan this time was that he wasn't going to set goals or really strategically train to see how it panned out. <laughs> um, actually, this is a, a great story. This marathon that I had trained for, that's exactly true. I did not use one measuring device for the entire uh, three-month training period. Not a watch, not a phone, not an app, nothing. Um, I, the only things I listened to were the sounds of nature and just listened to my body. Uh, I was able to do speed work. I was able to do long runs. I was able to do everything without measuring anything. And I, you know, I feel great. I'm going to continue doing that. I still don't measure anything and I'll keep doing that through the Barcelona marathon when I eventually run that one again. But my hope is to qualify again for Boston without you know, without, tra- without measuring anything. You know, I hope it's good enough to get me a, 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 an entry into Boston again. Wow, that's yeah. mind-blowing mind from our background. <laughs> I know, I was saying, we're gonna have to have a panel at some point where we bring on the people that say, you must measure, and you <laughs> that says, I'm uh, gonna do it without measuring. <laughs> I will, I'll, 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 I'll take, I will take up that conversation anytime. I mean, I know there, there's benefits to measuring, but even when I coach canoeing athletes, I don't bring a stopwatch to the river. If they want time, still athletes will find their way, figure out ways to get time. But what I like to, when you remove time, here's the question I always am able to ask athletes. When you take away time, what do you notice? It's a beautiful question to ask athletes, you know, and then it doesn't matter what they answer. They're gonna answer something, they notice something but they can't say I was either faster or slower because they don't know. So they got to say something else. And I, I love that. I like that approach and I'm about to adopt it. I finally met my goal weight. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good, good, good. Yeah. no longer on the scale. Yeah. Yeah. Good for you. And what, well, you want to do the second? Yeah. I was going to say, why did you send us this second one? What does this represent? This is, this is nuts. This, this is a group of people who just finished kayaking from Havana, Cuba to Key West, Florida. Um, there are two guys in the middle, uh, uh, Frank and Brent, they, we were in tandem kayaks. They were the only ones to actually complete the entire journey without stopping. Um, there is a big story in the middle. I'll kind of, I, I don't have time to go into that story today, but we all learned so much from this, uh, this lesson, 34 hours and 10 minutes uh, out in the ocean. Uh, we had support boats, um, but these two guys, Frank and Brent, uh, never touched a boat, never got out of their kayak for 34 hours and 10 minutes. And uh, Frank was a, uh, was a pretty good rower who had a total of 30 minutes kayak experience uh, prior to this, doing this paddle. <laughs> and the other one, Brent, was really a good like surfboard type surfer. And these guys signed up to come on to this trip as like journalists that wrote blogs. And they were the ones that completed this. And um, I wrote a couple of blog posts about my favorite failure and the lessons learned from this particular uh, 
um, uh, crossing and, you know, paddling a sea kayak and doing open water expeditions was never my thing, which is what I loved about it. I love the fact that everyone in this photo had virtually no kayaking experience prior to doing the trip, but they, many of them trained for it. And, um, and then we had to rally around Frank and Brent and helping to get them to the finish because we wanted someone to kind of complete this clean, clear crossing from Havana to Key West. And yeah, we arrived at, uh, you know, we started at 12 noon uh, in Havana the day before and arrived at 10, 10 at night uh, here at Key West when this photo was taken. Wow. Well, that's a good segue into a question that you know we ask everybody, which is about the, the nature-nurture debate. So what are your thoughts on this? What role do you think, you know, nature and the idea of being born with something plays versus who you are or what life brings you or what you do? Yeah, you know, and you guys frame this question a lot around, you know, your work with, with Anders as, as well. And, and, you know, so this is something I, I had thought about because Anders was so you know, was misunderstood because of the book uh, by Malcolm Gladwell, Outliers, and what, what does 10,000 hours of, of, of training um, really, really mean? And, um, you know, as I thought about this is that, um, that yes, I came across, most people who succeed in whitewater canoeing were not born with it. Uh, I have seen people that were born with it, but they struggled to find the motivation to kind of keep doing it. And uh, most of our champions are people who uh, learned and progressed and persevered. And um, in my case, you know, there's nothing about me that looked like I had a disposition to do this sport very well. But I think that book in which Anders is a bit misunderstood I think there is something to this idea of these fortuitous circumstances in your life that kind of land you where you are. And, you know, for me to end up in that training group, yeah, that was, that was a thing for me. I, I, I don't, I can't tell you it wouldn't have happened, but, you know, I, I landed in this training group and, and yet I, I figure out how to leave it behind as well and start a new one somewhere else. Like, and again, I come, I think it's sort of the good way to end. It's like, it's like everything you guys know. It's like, it's the answer almost to everything. It's, it's a nuanced, it's both, you know, Dr. Adam Naylor calls it the dance between, mm -hmm. you know, it's a little bit of both. And, and it's, that's always a little bit the right answer. And having been a part of a culture of excellence and having started one up, it's like, yeah, there's something there between, you know, nature and nurture. I wasn't born with it, but I was born into something, you know, the right time, the right place. Um, Malcolm Gladwell writes about this in Outliers, you know, when he talks about like Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, you know, being born at a certain time that, and being where they were, where they had access to sort of play with programming on these giant mainframe computers. Um, so the same book in which Anders was misunderstood, I think there's some wonderful things in which to expand upon, but I'm also really grateful to know more about Anders work because of people like you guys and, you know, putting some context and explanation behind a book in which he was maybe misunderstood. So what's the, what's the biggest takeaway from your story? From my story? 
I I think that the um, yeah, it's it's really hard to, to to choose just one, but you know, I I was you know I talked to these people who there's a lot of people who work in this um, these sport career these transition you know tr helping athletes transition from sport to their life after sport, and it used to be seen so so clear that like yeah start working on it while you're an athlete and build networks and try things and you know it's really good for you and and today i don't feel that way at, at all you know my, my story is is that it's like we were just talking about it. it's like this i'm at, at 50 years old i just have this approach that it's not about one right way it's about learning from your way if you're an athlete and you're thinking about transition for just as an example from sport to career, you know, life after sport, and you feel that like doubling down on your athletic effort at the end of your career and keep learning is like the way to go, you're going to hit a point where like it's going to serve you really well. And if you're the kind of person that thinks like it's really helpful to build a network, maybe explore business opportunities and try that while you're still competing that's going to serve you really well. Like, you know, it's, it's, it, it's not like one right way. Um, and I, I'm just so, you just step back from it and you're, you're, we're, we're going to hit these points where, you know, I'm there now. It's just that I, I see this word like be more productive and it's just like, you know, tell me why, you know, some of this is my surroundings where I am right now. And I got to tell you, Lauren, and just even from a coaching standpoint, like maybe it would have happened. I don't know. I have stepped back so much from what I do. And yet I've had like more professional growth and what I'm doing and what I'm learning and in client development as well by taking that approach. You know, I just, I figured out all these other things outside of work that make me incredibly happy. I'm not a minimalist, but I do know I'm very, very clear, like on these simple things that make me happy. I don't have a lot of possessions. I'm very mobile and I'm very adaptable to change, but I know what makes me happy. And I, I don't shy away from spending on investing on those things and everything else is just, I'm really good at letting go. And, and I do think about that okay, I can sort of see where there, you know, how I was like that, you know, as, as, as a high performing athlete back in the day when, when I did that. And that's what I would say. Wow. Great story. Yes. Thank you so much for joining us today, Joe. We really appreciate uh, having you on the, the podcast and, and sharing everything with us. It's been awesome to talk to you. You guys are doing great work. Um, I'm glad to listen to the podcast and uh, keep on keeping on. It's, it's wonderful. You guys are doing a great job. Thank you. The Path Distilled is hosted by Kevin Harris and Lauren Tashman, created and produced by Kevin Harris. The content is copyrighted by The Path Distilled, all right reserved.